Welcome to Street Talk Theology with Pastor Dominic Grimaldi. Pastor Dom went from a life of organized crime to federal prison. There, God saved him and set him free. Soon after his release, he attended seminary and received his master's degree and is now the senior pastor of Desert Sky Baptist Church, where he serves with a passion for biblical theology right here in Casa Grande. Now let's join our host, Pastor Dominic Grimaldi. Pastor Dominic Grimaldi here with Street Talk Theology. We take theology and we bring it to the streets. We're excited to have Joel Webbin back on with us. And so I want to just quickly, because I want I, I have a question and Michael's got a question and we only got about 28 minutes. So Pastor Grimaldi at Gmail, any questions concerning this, any other doctrinal um, things, whatever, um, send them to me and we'll try to get them answered. Uh, Pastor Michael, um, let people know what's going on with you. And then we'll, uh, I want to ask a question to, uh, Joel. Right. It's good to be back again with all of you. And, um, you can reach me at, uh, Michael Terry at gmail.com as always, um, uh, looking forward to receiving your mails. If you want to visit our church here in India, you can visit redemptionhill.in. Um, you can know more about us. And if ever you're in India, as I always keep saying, please let us know. We'd love to have you over. The name of the book is Am I Truly Saved? A study through First John. And I'm going to, uh, uh, Joel can handle this. I'm going to give him a question. Maybe he'll tell you about the book and then answer the question. So I'm going to turn it over to him. So here's my question. Sometimes what's the difference between our subjective feelings? Do You know, like, I don't feel saved or what objectively has been done for you on that cross. So then we, uh, so my question is, you know, what's the difference between, you know, sometimes you're not going to feel saved. I don't feel, you know, you're a sinner, obviously. So when I, 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 and I think that's a question I get in pastoral ministry. So that's why I want to pose it to, to pastor Joel. And I think he mentions that um, in the book. So maybe he can help us with that. And again, uh, I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Joel. Am I truly saved a study through First John? Joel? Yeah, thanks, Dominique. Um, so yeah, am I truly saved? If you want to get a copy of the book, you can go to rightresponseministries.com. It's exclusively offered on our website, rightresponseministries.com. Um, you can buy a book. I think it's like 10 bucks. It might even be cheaper. Um, but if you want a hard copy, you can buy it. You'll have to pay a little bit for shipping. We'll get it out to you usually within two, three days. Um, but if you just want to get the content, you don't care about having a hard copy and you want to save some money, um, I get it. Uh, so you can just go instead of to our store at rightresponseministries.com, you can go to our donate donate page and uh, we will give a free digital copy for a gift of any amount. And uh, the minimum amount is one dollar and uh, we will not be offended in the slightest. I want people um, to be assured uh, that they are in Christ. I want Christians to know that they have believed and uh, and that they have an assurance and confidence of their justification. So you could give one dollar, and uh, we'll send you a digital copy of it. And you could uh, you could be looking at it uh, late later today, reading it. Okay. So that being said, um, this is I'm actually going to use the book. I'm going to read a little bit from it because your your question I deal with um, explicitly in the book. So this is actually I believe. Uh, the first chapter, the first lesson in the book, uh, real Christianity is objective, not subjective. All right. So this is, is what I wrote. What page is that, Joel? Uh, this is going to start on page 16. So page 16 in the book, real Christianity 
is objective, not subjective. Uh, the text that I'm working from um, in, in terms of 1 John is 1 John chapter 1, just the first two verses, verses 1 through 2. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest. All right? And that language, right, it may seem heady, it may seem a little bit confusing, but it's so important um, that, that the apostle begins the letter before saying anything else. What he's doing is he's giving his credentials. And his credentials, right, he's basically saying, this is why you should listen to everything else I'm about to write. The whole rest of my letter, the reason why it's worth reading, the reason why it's worth believing, the reason why it's worth knowing is because of these first two verses, because I'm an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord, because I spent time with him, years with him as his disciple, because we saw him before the crucifixion and we saw him after the crucifixion. And we didn't just see him with our eyes. We heard him with our ears and we touched him. It actually says we touched him. Um, we, we are credible witnesses and it's not just me, uh, but I stand with the other apostles who are eyewitnesses of this uh, this same historical objective reality. This is not a mystical private experience. That's one of the things, right? If you're if you're wondering what are some of the key distinctions between cults and false religions mm. and Christianity, one of the key distinctions is that every false religion and or cult is always based off of a private mystical experience, right? So you, you think of Joseph Smith. Right? He has this private mystical experience that cannot be vouched for. It can't be validated by anyone else. You just got to take his word for it. You know, even Muhammad uh, with, with Islam is it's this private revelation that he's getting. And you and you know that he's he's really what he's doing is he's just hearing from Christians in his day and age. He's he's hearing from them. And then writing things down, and you know this because even within the Quran, uh, we see Christian heresies, ironically, not just Christian truths, but Christian heresies. So like there, there are, you know, portions of the Quran that talk about like how, you know, when, um, when Jesus was still um, in, in Mary's womb and they were fleeing, right? Because Joseph had the dream, you know, the King Herod was going, you know, going to be after them and they're fleeing to Egypt. Um, there's, you know, there's a portion of the Quran where Muhammad, who is obviously the author, it did not fall from the sky. He says, you know, well, uh, Jesus from the womb spoke to a tree because Mary and Joseph were parched and thirsty going, you know, through the wilderness to Egypt and the tree bent over so that they could grab the fruit and drink, you know, its juice. And, you know, and so there's all these different, and that was a common, um, that was a common false account, a, a Christian heresy that was circul circulating in the area where Muhammad was in, in, in that time. And so my, my point is, Muhammad, it's private revelation. He's just collecting things. But the Bible, the Bible speaks of actual historic events. Um, you know, like, like even in the Apostles' Creed, we say he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And I've had Christians say, well, why do you emphasize Pontius Pilate, right? I mean, Jesus died because of all of us. It was our sins. And really, Pontius Pilate wanted to set him free, you know, and, and it was the Jews who, like, the, the point of mentioning 
Pontius Pilate in the Apostles' Creed is not to say that Pontius Pilate bears the most guilt for the crucifixion of Jesus. They mention Pontius Pilate because he was a historical figure that every, everyone would recognize. For hundreds of years later, they would recognize, oh, that was the ruler, the Roman ruler in that area at the time who, who rendered the decision to hand Jesus up. It's historical. It's objective. And so all that being said, um, you know, I, I'll just read this, but um, you know, the, the next, uh, the, the phrases that appear in verse one of first John chapter one are these, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have touched with our hands. John uses all this language to convey that he is not merely referring to some subjective and mystical vision of Christ, but that he and the other apostles actually heard and saw Jesus as he lived among them for years during his earthly ministry and after his resurrection. In summary, John is saying that Jesus Christ really did come in the flesh and bodily rose from the tomb, and all of this was historically validated by John and the other apostles in objective ways. Therefore, we are meant to conclude that the message John is writing is absolutely reliable and legitimate. And so Amen. my point is to answer your question, Dominique, in closing, um, a lot of Christians, yeah, it's like, I don't feel saved or I didn't have, you know, and, and the problem is it, a lot of it is our testimonies. People, you know, like youth groups, you know, you have some ex-gang member who comes in and says, I was shot seven times and here's all my tattoos and God saved me. And, or, or we read, you know, biblically, we read, you know, Saul of Tarsus, you know, he's on his way on the Damascus road, you know, and God knocks him off of his donkey and blinds him from heaven. He hears a voice from heaven, Saul, Saul, why, why do you persecute me? And, and, you know, I've noticed that the people who struggle in my pastoral ministry, who struggle with assurance most often tend to be people who are raised in the church. And the reason why is ironically, because they have the best testimony, the best testimony, which is I was raised in the church. I was raised to know God. I was raised not, not to uh, go off with wild escapades of rebellion and debauchery. And so they don't have this night today kind of, transition they don't have a singular point. moment great point. you know what i mean they don't yeah. have this this intense moment where i you know i was on my way like the reason why saul's um conversion is so incredible seemingly so incredible is because of the the, the high degree of his rebellion what was he on his way to do kill christians so it's because he it was because he was so uh, strongly rebelling and persecuting Jesus, which is what Jesus says to him, persecuting Jesus, that he has such a stark contrast from death to life, where he could, for the rest of his life, look back. I can't even tell you the day that I was saved. And that has no bearing on whether or not I actually was saved. Amen. What, Amen. What, what matters is Jesus, that he actually came in the flesh in real human history, he walked, he talked, he lived a sinless life. He died under Pontius Pilate outside Jerusalem, outside the gates, on a cross. Um, the, the Roman, I mean, all these testimonies, eyewitnesses, the, the Roman soldiers who pierced his side, you know, who said, surely this is the son of God. And, and he appeared after his resurrection, not just to the apostles, but to over 500 eyewitnesses. And they watched him. They watched him ascend and then disappear behind 
behind the clouds. And, and the basis for your salvation is not your subjective feelings. And it's not your life. It's not your death. It's not your work. It's not Amen. your person. It's Jesus. <laughs> and all of this is recorded for us. We have more evidence for the existence of Jesus than Caesar Augustus. We have more evidence for Jesus than we have Plato or Aristotle. And no one doubts the existence, the historical validity of them. The only reason Jesus is doubted is because if Jesus is real, then there is a universal imperative for every single person living, which is that if Jesus is real, then all of us must bow our knee and confess with our mouth that he is Savior and Lord. But but make no mistake, it's not like the evidence is weak. It's not it's not like, like we can't be sure of these things. We, we are certain, and they've been recorded for us mercifully by God in the scripture, the objective historical reality of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's on that basis that we're saved, not our subjective conversion experience. How mystical, how magical, how awesome was it? That's not the basis for our salvation. Man, I, I got a sermon, Michael. I love that, man. Praise the Lord, man. <laughs> I, no, that's well said. And that's, and, yeah. and I think that really, Michael, go because uh, we got, uh, we're at, 13 minutes. Right. And, uh, you know, just continuing with what we, we, we are talking about here, you know, um, you know, I'm, I'm just listening to what you've been saying also yesterday, you know, I think uh, we were doing another recording and we were talking about this question, are you saved? Right. And we were talking about how, if, if we try to answer that question um, in, in the first person, if we try to answer the question of am I saved by, by looking at ourselves, we've failed in answering the question. The first step of answering that question has to be answering it by looking to what Jesus did, looking at the personal work of Christ. We're looking at Romans 7, the end of Romans 7, where Paul says that, um, who can save me from this body of death? you know, the wretched man that I am. And he goes from there straight into, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That the the response to the question is an objective truth, a uh, conviction that Amen. he is God, he is king, and he is the one. And um, so, so my question really comes off of that, even while you were talking about, you know, having the, you know, great, testimony of being brought up in the Christian home. I, I cannot tell you the number of uh, young people, right? Young men and women I run into uh, in, in among Baptist churches here who are not baptized, right? Because they don't have the testimony of their parents. They don't have the uh, jaw-dropping transformation. They've always grown up loving Jesus. They know the hymns and, and they love singing and, and, and they love Jesus in their heart. And they always, and, and it's also the parents who kind of give that to them, the feeling that they're not ready, that they too need to have some sort of transformation standard that they need to meet in order for them to uh, even go into the waters of baptism. You know, but we, we at our church, we encourage them we we look for, we don't look that high up when it comes to uh, <laughs> wanting young people to go into the waters of baptism we look for conviction and uh, so so my question is based around that which is 
you know, we know that unrepentant sin or like, you know, when, what we read John telling us here, where if we, you know, if we say that we do not sin, we lie, right? We are, and we call God a liar. That's basically what we are doing. But mm. how, how can people distinguish between um, a life where they are backsliding versus the evidence of not being saved? Right, a, a life of being, uh, a life of a struggle with. Because I run into young people who, you know, who have that struggle where they love Jesus. They've been brought up in Christian homes. Um, they're confused about baptism because their parents keep telling them they're not ready yet. And but they love Jesus and they're doing everything they can. But they they do struggle with sin, and they know they're not perfect. And so the question becomes: Okay, maybe I'm not saved. You know, and then they go to First John, and and they go away thinking, "Oh no, I'm not. What do I do with this? And where do I go with this? And how how can a person distinguish that between, you know, am I saved? Is this evidence of me not being saved, or, you know, am I backsliding? Am I, you know?" Yeah, great question. Uh, so one of the other things that First John addresses is this condemnation, and First John talks about, you know talks about the enemy, the devil who condemns, but but one of the most encouraging things, First John is pretty much the only place in the Bible that, that talks about the condemnation that can come from our own heart. Mm. And so there are times where our own heart will rise up and condemn us. And and what John gives us as the weapon uh, to, to combat the condemnation that comes at times from our own heart is this. He says, um, he says uh, but God is greater than our hearts. And he, he says two things. Number one, God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. Those are the two things. So he speaks to what, what we could say is the omnipotence of God and the omniscience of God. God is greater. He's bigger. He's stronger, omnipotent. Um, but then also um, that he's omniscient and he knows everything. And the reason why it seems like, well, that's kind of random. Why are you mentioning those two attributes of God in, in, in regards to combating condemnation that comes from our own hearts? Well, one of the reasons why is because when we fall into sin, especially if it's an egregious sin or a pattern of sin, um, you know, and, and it's like, man, you know, that, that those seasons of backsliding, what you're talking about, um, when those things happen, it's not just that it's hard and it's difficult, it's discouraging, but it's also... Um, it can be surprising. It can be shocking uh, because we're not omniscient, right? So we're, we're creatures. We're not the creator. We're finite. We're not infinite. And so we're limited in knowledge. And, and so our, our sin always comes to us as finite creatures. It comes to us as news. It's news to us, um, but it's not news to God, right? So before the foundation of the world, uh, God in his foreknowledge predestined in his love, in the beloved, like, so, so, you know, his foreknowledge speaks of not just the omniscience of God looking down the quarter of time and knowing all who would exist and seeing who would choose him. And then based off of that knowledge, going back and, you know, cheating time, going back to the beginning and choosing them, that would be conditional, right? It'd just be based on a future condition and God using his omniscience, knowing the future for him to make a decision. I'm choosing this person because I know one day they'll choose me. All right. But that would be conditional. No, the, the, the foreknowledge that's spoken of Ephesians talks about this. Peter talks about this. Um, it, it means to pre-love. It's not just that God knows in, the, um, in a general sense, but it's that God is an intimate knowing. Um, and so speaking of those that God intimately knew before the foundations of the world. So my point is this, God who is omniscient, he knows, um, 
He knows who he's going to save. And not only that, he knows all the ways that we're going to fail him pre-salvation and post-salvation yeah, after amen. our conversion. Amen. All the ways we're still going to, and, and he made the decision with that knowledge. He still chose us. He still chose us. So it's, yeah. it's when we sin, it's like, we're, we're re kind of thinking we're reevaluating, right? Because it's new information, our sin, every action that we do, anything I do tomorrow will be news to me. You know, like I have some idea of, of what tomorrow might look like, but, but, but I'm, I'm finite. And so anything we do positive or negative, right? Righteous or sinful, it's, it's new information. And so what do we do with new information? Well, we, we process it and we reevaluate our, you know, based off of these new circum- circumstances, we, we reevaluate our identity, who we are, our standing, uh, and, and we re- reevaluate God's love for us, which is something that we should not do. And so we come into sin, our hearts begin to condemn us saying, oh man, if you were a Christian, you wouldn't have done this. This is proof that you're not really, you're not really a Christian, right? You either lost your salvation if you're an Arminian or if you're a Calvinist, it's like, oh, this is proof you never had your salvation. And both can wrestle with assurance in in those two different ways. Uh, But what we need to remember in those moments when our heart condemns us, number one, God is greater than our heart. And that speaks to the fact that uh, greater in the sense of of his power, but also his authority, right? So you think of, uh, of Hebrews talks about the blood of Abel, Right? But the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. It's a better word, more positive, hopeful word, a word of forgiveness. But it's also the more, it's the final word. It's the more authoritative word. So the blood of Abel, who was killed, for your listeners who may not be familiar, he was killed by his brother Cain. And, and God says to Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. For what? For vengeance, for justice. You killed him. You did wrong. You need to be punished. Um, but the blood of Jesus, one of the things Jesus said as he's dying on the cross is, forgive them, Father. For they know not. So the blood of Jesus cries out not for vengeance and justice. The blood of Jesus cries out for mercy. And so, so it, it has a better word, but it also has a bigger word. It's the final word. It's the more authoritative word. And so God is greater than our hearts. So our hearts, your subjective, sweet little heart <laughs> doesn't get the final word. And that's good news, right? Your heart, who cares? about what your heart says. That's Disney, not gospel. Follow your heart. Who cares? We we don't need to follow our heart. Christians spend too much time listening to their hearts and too little time preaching the gospel to their hearts. We don't listen to our hearts. We preach to our hearts. We tell our hearts that are subjectively wrestling with what to believe. In those moments, we tell our hearts what we know with our head. What, what our head knows to be true, we preach it to our heart until our heart begins to feel that it's true. We shape our hearts. We're not led by our hearts, but we preach to our heart. And the reason why is because God's word is better. It speaks a better word. Our hearts speak damning words, discouraging words, but God speaks encourage, a better word. And not only is it better, more hopeful, but it's also more true. It's not just better. It's bigger. God is more authoritative than our hearts. And one of the reasons he's more authoritative is because he's God, but also because he's in being God, he's omniscient. He knows everything. This is new information for me. I didn't know I was this bad. I never thought that I would do this or do that, right? David, right? I never thought I was the kind of man who would commit adultery. But then look at what David does. He doesn't reevaluate and reinterpret his entire his in, entire uh, conversion and testimony. David doesn't say, and then the, the prophet Nathan uh, confronted me and I repented of my sin and that was my conversion. 
See, that's what a lot of reformers do these days. They, they backslide, they commit some kind of egregious sin or even a habit, prolonged periods of habitual sin, and then they're delivered from it, and then and then they start the clock over. Now I'm actually saved. This was my conversion. David doesn't do that with Bathsheba. David, uh, because the same David who commits this egregious sin says, against you and you alone, O God, have I sinned, purge me with the hyssop, clean me, all these things, uh, create me a new heart. It's like, oh, create me, a new, that's regeneration, that's conversion. No, because this is the same David who elsewhere says, from my mother's breast, I have trusted you. Polycarp, the disciple of John, the disciple of Christ, he said when he was martyred at the very end of his life, he says, 86 years have I served you. And every scholar and historian says he only was alive for 86 years. What was he talking about? His whole life. He never knew a moment that he wasn't trusted. Now, that doesn't mean he was regenerate from the womb. But what it means is that we need to disciple our children from birth as Christians, Right? I don't teach my kids to pray, uh, mom and dad's father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. No, I teach my kids, my two-year-old kid, who I'm pretty sure is not regenerate yet, but I teach her to pray, our father, our father. I am training them not as pagans. I am training them as pre-Christians so that they would never know a moment that they didn't trust the Lord, so that they would know things with their mind, so that they're able in those moments of doubting in their hearts to preach, not listen and follow their heart, but preach to their heart and lead their heart into further assurance, knowing that God is bigger and what he says is better. He is greater than our hearts. He has the better word and the bigger word, the final word. And one of the reasons that word is more authoritative, that it's bigger, is because he knows everything. My sin is news to me, but it's not news to God. I'm reevaluating. I'm resituating myself, knowing that, oh my goodness, I never thought I was the kind of man who would commit adultery like David, you know, this kind of situation. But, but God knew it all and he loved me regardless, unconditionally. God has not changed his mind about me. I'm simply changing my mind about me, but God is not changing his. Praise the Lord. And you were out of time. Amen. That was great. You know, I, you know what I got to? This is great. I mean, you don't hear this a lot, but I've, God does not need foreknowledge for knowledge. He knows. He already knows. Mm. He doesn't need to look down the corridors of time to see who's going to come to. He already knows. That's, a, that's a, another profound point. Thank you for that. I mean, you know, he knows. He doesn't, mm. you know... Um, you know, I don't want to get yeah, his, his foreknowledge is, yeah, he, he's omniscient. He, of course he knows. Yeah. The foreknowledge is speaking about an intimate knowing, the way that, the way that you would know your wife, that he, right. he knows his children, his elect, like that. It's not, he knows everything's going to happen, but that foreknowledge is speaking that he, that he, um, that he intimately knows. He loves. Yeah. Praise the Lord, man. Um, well, um, Street Talk Theology, this was a blessing. Listen, I'm, I'm going to say it right now so on this on this broadcast the the book is i am truly saved pastor gromaldi at gmail the first three people that 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 email me about this book the church here will buy for them so the first three people who email me and let me know that they listened to pastor joel and and got something from the book we will we will get the book for uh, we will get three free copies so um, that's how much I think this will be helpful to all of us. Um, and I'm looking forward to our home group and Pastor Joel gave me permission that I can use the book and, uh, we're going to, we're going to get blessed through this book. Thank you so much. Pastor Michael, always good to see you. Uh, give baby Ethan a hug for me. Uh, I will. Uh, 
And uh, we are so grateful and thankful. Uh, Pastor Joel, may the Lord bless and keep you and shine his light upon you. Um, Thank you. Uh, it's great to get preached. Thanks, tonight. Michael. And thanks, Dominic. I, I appreciate you guys having yeah, me on. Thank man, you so much. It was a joy. It was a joy. It really was, man. I got to go deal with eight, uh, eighth graders now. So pray for me. <laughs> Uh, Street Talk Theology, uh, Do uh, Pastor Dominic Romaldi, and today we were honored to have, obviously, Pastor Michael Teddy, Pastor Joel Webin, and please, please, am I truly saved? Great read, encouraging read, also a challenging read, in Jesus' name. Again, Street Talk Theology, we take theology to the streets, in Jesus' name. God bless. Thank you for joining us for Street Talk Theology with Pastor Dominic Grimaldi. You can visit Pastor Dom at Desert Sky Baptist Church at 891 West Corson Road, Casa Grande. And for more information, visit us online at www.desertskybaptist.org.